0: If you've got a Bible, open to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have one with you, you can follow along on the screen behind me uh, as we read it this morning. Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 4 and we'll read down through verse 11 together. The Apostle Paul begins in Philippians 4, the latter part of it, with this statement. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. "...circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ." and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, church, there have been a lot of events and inventions in human history that have shaped and shifted the entire course of civilization as we know it, right? Uh, Think of the printing press. Changed the way that materials were made available for distribution. and well, You didn't need scribes any longer sitting in dark rooms lit by candles, copying manuscript to manuscript. But now you can mass produce it and mass distribute it. Think of the industrial revolution that took place and the invention of the internal combustion engine. So no longer did you need horses and buggies and carts to move from place to place, but now you can get in the car and turn the key. Now push a button, Right? Right? You think of the advent of the internet, it shifted the course of civilization and, and really influenced globalization as we know it, as now you can connect to people across the world at this, at the, with a few keystrokes on a computer or a smart device. There have been so many events and so many inventions that have shaped and shifted the course of civilization, but none to the degree and scope as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Now listen, this might be a shocker for some of you, but we're going to talk about the resurrection this morning. <laughs> It is Easter, and we are a church that worships and serves Jesus, believes that He is God, Lord, and Savior. And so we're going to talk about the fact that He is raised from the grave. Jesus is risen every day, right? Amen? But on this day, the church has carved out time to remember that He is risen indeed. And what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 10, is really where we're going to draw our focus this morning, when Paul speaks of the power of Jesus' resurrection made available to everyone who would trust in and treasure Him. The power of Jesus' resurrection. But listen, I want you to know something, that for Jesus' resurrection to be powerful in your life, it must also be two other things. Like, if you really want the power of Jesus' resurrection to invade your life, if you want it to consume your life, if you want it to control your life, if you want it to shape and shift your life, it's got to, it has to be two other things. And the first one is this. It has to be historical. Listen, let's get real clear on what we're talking about this morning. And to get real clear on what we're talking about, I want to tell you what we're not talking about when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, we're not talking about Jesus having a near-death experience. Right, where he's in the back of an ambulance and right, he begins to see this white light, and you got paramedics around him and they, they begin to work on him, right? And they're giving him chest compressions and mouth to mouth. They charge with the paddles, shock his heart back into rhythm, and right, he comes back. He didn't have a near death experience. That's not what we're talking about. Second of all, we're not talking about how Jesus' legacy or his spirit has lived on in the lives of those he inspired. Right? That's not what we're talking about this morning. Like the great heroes of old. Right? You read their stories and read their lives and their, how they endured difficult hardships and how they persevered to overcome and how they inspired people who lived in their wake. And so they live on in their legacy or they live, their spirit lives on in those that they've inspired. That's not what we're talking about either. Third, we're also not talking about the resuscitation of Jesus. Right? As if he, 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 he died and then he was resuscitated and then he died again. Right? C.S. Lewis used to say he felt pity for Lazarus because he's the only dude to die twice. Right? He had to go through that twice. But Jesus, we're not talking about his resuscitation. Right? Let me tell you what we're also not talking about. We're also not talking about the spiritualization of the resurrection. So we don't look at the resurrection and say, well, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. What matters is, is that when Jesus got knocked down, he got up again. And when you get knocked down, you can get up again too. Right? And so we don't say foolish things like, it's Friday, right? And you ain't got no job. You ain't got money to pay your bills. You ain't got no car or house or a spouse or kids. But Sunday's coming, right? Right? We don't say things like that. We don't spiritualize the resurrection as if it's it's some fable that has a moral to it. No, we're not talking about any of those things this morning. What we're talking about is the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, never to die again. John Stott was an Anglican bishop, and he's recently passed on to be with the Lord. Listen to what he says. He says, God performed a dramatic act by which He arrested the process of decay, decomposition, and corruption. He rescued Jesus out of the realm of death and transformed His body into a new vehicle for His personality so that He had new power and was now immortal, never to die again. That is something new that never had happened Before and never has happened yet since. That's what we're talking about this morning. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And if it's going to have power in your life, it has to be an event, a fact that it actually happened. It didn't just inspire us to keep going when things get hard. But if there's going to be power channeled through it and active in your life, it has to be something that you look back and say, It happened. Now, some of you might be skeptical of that this morning, and so let me give you, I could give you several lines of evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. I'm gonna give you one. That's all the time we've got. If you want to talk about more, I'd love to connect with you after the service. But I'll give you one this morning. And the, and the one I'm gonna give you is this is the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb. Now, so you say, how's the empty tomb evidence for the resurrection? Right? There's all kinds of theories about how the tomb got to be empty on Sunday morning. Right? Sometimes they say the disciples stole the body. They came in the night and they right, beat up the Roman guards and they took the body and they went and hid it. Right? Let me, let me, let's think this out for a moment logically. Why would the disciples steal the body? And why would they continue to lie, perpetrate the lie that Jesus had been risen if they knew the body was hidden behind one of their sheds whenever they started facing persecution and opposition and death on account of the fact that they were preaching this Jesus as one who had been raised? Like, 10 of the 12 apostles gave their life for the preaching of the resurrection. Don't you think that would have been like, we were just playing, man. Look, his body's right over here. Some would say the Romans or the, the Jewish leaders stole the body. They took and hid the body so that it couldn't become a shrine for Christians to come and visit. But listen, why would the religious or political leaders take the body either? Like, they... Listen, they did not want to see Christianity flourish. They wanted to see it flounder. They wanted to see it flattened. They wanted to see it squashed. Why would they fuel the fire, right, and taking the body and making the Christians believe that Jesus had been raised if they were opposed to it? They had no motive to take the body either. When you draw, when you draw it down, the most... The, 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 the most convincing argument for how the tomb became empty on Sunday morning is that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Let me, let me give you a few pieces, if that's not enough for you, let me give you a few more pieces. First of all, think about this, the disciples, when they begin to preach the resurrection, where do they begin to preach it at? In Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus had been crucified and buried several days before. Now listen, the disciples don't go, listen, we've got a great scheme. We're going to go to Scandinavia or Siberia or Saigon. Start talking about this Jesus who's been raised from the grave in a place where they'd never met him or seen him. right? But no, they stay in the very city where he had been crucified, the very city where he had been buried. And don't you think if if, if other folks had not been an established fact that Jesus had been raised, they could not have upheld that proclamation for very long. In fact, one scholar said it this way. He said they could not have maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, for a single moment that the resurrection of Jesus had taken place if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for everyone who was concerned. People knew the tomb was empty. And they knew why. Second of all, right, even the Jews acknowledged the tomb was empty. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11-15, to 15, there's a reference made to the Jews' attempt to refute Christianity by saying that the disciples had taken the body and even paying the Roman guards to say that. Right, the high priest called the Roman guards in and said, Listen, we're going to slip you a little bit under the table. And whenever they, people ask you about what happened to the body, tell them the disciples came and took it. That was the Jewish attempt to explain away the empty tomb. In fact, the Jewish writings of that day and of that time, they all give credence to the empty tomb. They all talk about how the tomb was empty. And listen, scholars will tell you that if someone gives credibility to a fact that is against their position, then that fact must be genuine. The Jews who were seeking to crush Christianity said, yeah, the tomb was empty. We've got to come up with an alternate explanation. Then Jesus was raised. Right? Third, the empty tomb account in the Gospel of Mark is based on a source that was written within seven years of the events transpiring, much too early to be legendary, as if they waited several hundred years and thought, well, hey, here's a, here's a good twist to the story, how to make it very inspirational for everyone who comes after. We'll say that Jesus was raised. No, it was seven years after. How do we know that? Because Mark's gospel is thought by many to be the earliest gospel written. And in Mark's gospel, Mark never mentions the name of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time of which Jesus was crucified and buried and laid in the tomb. He never mentions Caiaphas by name. Because Caiaphas was still the high priest when Mark's source was writing and began to circulate. He didn't have to distinguish him from anyone else. Right, and Caiaphas was the high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 37, which means this, that that source that Mark was drawing on as he wrote his gospel account, it could not have been written later than seven years after the events transpired in Jerusalem, much too early for legends and fables to develop. Plus, it sounds nothing like it. There's a gospel, so-called gospel of Peter, that was written around A.D. 125. And listen, listen, it's, it's, it's actually quite entertaining, the resurrection account in the gospel of this so-called gospel of Peter. Because you got all the Jews and Roman authorities gathered around the tomb, and they're watching all of this, eating popcorn like it's a movie, right? And then you got these three dudes who walk out of the tomb with their hands stretched up into the heavens, then... To kick it all, a talking cross comes out of the tomb in the gospel of Peter, right? That's what legend sounds like. That's what fables and fiction sounds like in that day. It doesn't sound like Matthew. It doesn't sound like Mark. It doesn't sound like Luke. It doesn't sound like John. There's no evidence in any of those four gospels that it was some kind of legendary account that was constructed after the fact to give credence to their religious perspective that we should worship and serve Jesus, The tomb was empty on Sunday morning, and the best explanation for the tomb being empty on Sunday morning was because the disciples had no motive to take the body, the religious and political leaders had no motive to take the body. The best explanation is that God quickened the body of Jesus and raised him to life, and the tomb was empty. So the resurrection is an historical fact. But listen, if if the resurrection is going to have power in your life, it cannot be merely a set of facts and figures. It can't merely be a set of data that you say, yes, I believe, I ascribe to these propositions. Because if the resurrection is going to have power in your life, not only must it be an historical event, but listen, church, it must also be a personal experience. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Philippians chapter 3. It's gotta be a personal experience It begins to change and reshape and reform your life. See, in verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, the great aim of his life now is to be with and to be like Jesus. That's what he says he's aiming at. And this is a dramatic, listen, I want you to know, this is a dramatic shift for Paul. A dramatic shift. You go back in in Philippians 3, and he says, If anyone thinks he's got reason for confidence in what he can do, and what she can do, and what they're able to accomplish, their abilities, and a confidence in the flesh, he says, I want you to know I've got more. Right? I had the right pedigree, and I had the proper performance. Paul says, listen, I was on the varsity team. Okay? Listen, if you think about those who were Jews, and those who were Hebrews, and those who were Pharisees, I was on the varsity team. I got drafted in the first round. Okay? I made rookie of the year in all leagues that I played in, right? I, I was on every all-star team. My mantle is lined with all kinds of most valuable player awards. I went on to the Pro Bowl. I was an all-star. I was a rock star. I was a shooting star in Judaism that burned so brightly. And yet Paul says, everything that I once considered to my gain, I now count as a loss. Because when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, Here's what Paul found. Jesus found him and Paul found in him something worth more than everything from his past. All of his pedigree and all of his performance. All of his workspace righteousness. And it began to radically reshape Paul's life so that he could say that everything that was in the plus column of my life is now in the minus column. Everything that I thought once thought I built my identity around I now see it through much different lenses. And I now have a new ambition, a new aim. It's not to be the best of the best. My aim now is to know the surpassing greatness of the worth of Jesus in my life. That's what I want more than anything else. Not to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews, not to be a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but I want to know Jesus. I've got a new ambition and a new aim. And listen, what Paul says is that whenever he... Jesus found him, what he found in Jesus was something more valuable than his pedigree of performance. He found the inexhaustible value and surpassing worth of Jesus and began to reshape how Paul saw everything in his life, his vision. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I've worn corrective lenses from the time that I was in third grade, some powerful ones too, okay? So if I didn't have contacts in right now, you just would be blobs out there. That's all I would see. And listen, I don't see my contact lenses all the time, right? I see them in the morning whenever I put them in and I see them at night whenever I take them off and put them in the case. Every day, that's the two times that I see them, but every waking moment of the day, I see everything through them. Everything through them. It sharp in my vision. And that's what Paul says has happened in his life. That everything that he sees now, he sees through the, so as he looks back on his past, he sees it through the lens of Christ. As he looks forward to his future, he sees it through the lens of Jesus. As he looks now at his present circumspectly, he sees it through the lens of Jesus. Everything he's seeing through the lens of Jesus in his life. right? He's seeing his marriage through the lens of Jesus. He's seeing his... Well, he wasn't married. But he's seeing, if he was married, he's seeing, he'd be seeing his marriage, his kids, his finances, his family, his history... Everything through the lens of Jesus. Right? What he spends his money on, he's seeing through the lens of Jesus. Right? What you're, what you're doing with your sexuality, you're seeing through the lens of Jesus. What you're doing with your mind, the things that you're giving it over to, you're seeing through the lens of Jesus. What you're allowing to engage and enrapture your heart, you're trying to see through the lens of Jesus. Everything you're trying to see through the lens of Jesus. That's what it is to have a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Not just to give, uh, say, yes, I affirm all of these checklists of doctrines. But I've, I see everything now through the lens of Christ. And so Paul says it's, that's a powerful experience that reshapes your life. So you're like, how do I have that experience? Let me give you two things as we close this morning. The first one is this. If you're going to have the power of the resurrected Christ in your life, not only must it be historical and personal, but as it's personal, it's got to it's reshape your aim. You've got to aim to be with him. You've got to aim to be with him. This is what Paul says. He says, the great ambition in my life is to be with him first. Paul says, what I want more than anything is to know Jesus. I want to know his love. I want to know his compassion I want to know His kindness and His tenderness. I want to know His mercy and His grace. I want to know His glory and His majesty. I want to know Him for who He is. I want to know Him, Paul says. But not only do I want to know all those tender things about Jesus, I also want to know the tough things. Paul says, I want to know His correction in my life. I want to know his rebuke in my life. I want to know the places that he's challenging me. I want to know those areas in which he's convicting me. I want to know those areas in which he's disciplining me. I want to not only know things about Jesus, but I want to know him personally, encounter, and experience him. Right, church, listen, there's a big difference between knowing Jesus is all of these things and knowing Jesus as all of these things. Massive difference. At Christmas, we bought our kids a trampoline. We set it up in the backyard. And listen, that was a labor of love, right? Six hours on a Saturday afternoon, right? Setting up the frame and the skeleton, pulling those springs and attaching it to the mat and putting the net up and all that glorious labor and work, right? My little, my little girl who's seven, she's out there in the back, or six, she's about to be seven, she's out there in the backyard with me. Daddy, how can I help? All right, baby, like, it took me longer because she was helping than it would have had she not been helping, but it was one of those deals, right? And so the trampoline's been up for a while, but our kids have just now begun to use it often because it's warmed up. And so they go out in the backyard almost every day and they jump on the trampoline. My son enjoys it. My daughter is enthralled by it. She goes out and she just jumps. She would jump and jump and jump until her equilibrium is in the position of vertigo if we let her. Right, She loves to jump on the trampoline, but the thing that she loves more than jumping on the trampoline is jumping on the trampoline with other people, especially the people who live in the home with her, especially the people she calls mother and father. And so nearly every day, she goes out to the trampoline to jump. And listen, some days, I'll just be real honest, my heart just goes out. Daddy, come jump with me. Yes, let's go jump, baby. We're going to go jump, and we're going to bounce, and we're going to have a great time. Some days after the verbal beatdown of 73 requests to come jump with her, I finally get up off of the couch and go, okay, baby, let's go jump. And so I go out there, and we get up on the trampoline, and we start to jump, right? And we're bouncing, and there's she's, hold my hands, Daddy. We jump higher. Hold my hands, Daddy. So we can jump higher. And she's looking at me, and her eyes are just filled with awe and wonder, and she's just bubbling with laughter. And joy, and so every once in a while, when my legs get a little bit tired, I just kind of fall down on my bottom and I lay down on my back. And so, so she's like, "Daddy, get up! Daddy, get up!" I'm like, "No, baby, come down here." (laughs) And so she sometimes she'll get down on the trampoline and she'll crawl over to me, and she'll put her head on my chest. And we'll lay there on the trampoline looking up into the sky and we'll see if it's like evening. We'll see, you know, those sunset colors cast across the horizon or begin to see some of the, the, the moon above. Or we, if it's during the day, we see the clouds as they pass over. Or we might see planes or birds and she says, look, daddy, look, at the, look, that cloud looks like a dog. That cloud looks like an alligator. I don't know where she's getting all this stuff, but her mind is a wonderful thing. And so she's seeing all these things in the sky. Now listen, any other day, if you asked my daughter, is Shannon Collins your father? She would get that answer correct 99.9% of the time, right? Probably 100% of the time, right on a true false statement. But in those moments, you know what's happening? She's experiencing me not, she doesn't just know that I am her father. She's tasting of what it means to be close to me, to experience me as her father. Relationally, personally. And it lights her face up with joy and laughter. You can see it deep within her eyes as we bounce and laugh and she giggles. And as we lay there with our head on our, her head on my chest and just dream and imagine what lies out there beyond our atmosphere. She's tasting of me as her father. Now listen, I want you to know there, there are other times in which she tastes of me as her father where it's not all laughter and joy but sometimes it's great amount of tears that are welling up because she also receives correction and rebuke and discipline but she's experiencing the love of me as her father in those moments. She doesn't just say, I know that you love me intellectually but I'm experiencing it personally. And listen, I wonder if there are folks in the room this morning who on a true false test, you could say propositionally true to yes, Jesus is God. Yes, He's been raised from the grave. Yes, He died for my sins. Yes, He is a loving, gracious, compassionate God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Everything the Bible uh, teaches about Him, I would say yes, He is those things. But I wonder if there are those in the room this morning who have never shifted from is to as. They've never experienced him as those things in their life. I never really tasted of his love. Yes, I've heard that he's loving, but I've never tasted of it. Yes, I've heard that he's kind, but I've never tasted of it. Yes, I've heard that he rebukes and disciplines those that are his children, but I've never tasted of it. And Paul says if the resurrection is going to be a powerful experience in your life, it cannot just be historical. But it must also be personal. And it starts being personal starts with having the great aim of your life to know him, to experience him as he is. But the second thing that Paul says is this. Not only do you make the great aim of your life to know him, but you make the great aim of your life to be like him. And that's really the crux of what Paul's getting at when he talks about the power of Jesus' resurrection. When he says that the same power that raised Christ from the grave is now available and at work in your life to make you look and think and act and walk and live like Jesus. As you're conformed to his death and dying to yourself, as you share and taste in the fellowship of his sufferings, that you're walking with him and you're becoming like Him as He conforms, as God conforms you. The same Holy Spirit that awakened Jesus and raised Him from the grave is now living and alive in everyone who trusts and treasures in Christ. Our church, do you believe that? Do you believe that the same power that brought Him out of the grave is accessible, available, and at work today to make you like Him? To begin to deal with the dirty and dead areas of your life. Listen, I, I, I remember before we, moved, before we sold our home in Raleigh and moved out to Fate, one of the things that we did like to try and make the house a little more appealing right, to buyers was pull up all the nasty old dirty carpet and replace it with a nice new clean carpet. Right? So people could come in and vision. yeah, my babies could be crawling on this carpet and we could you know, laugh and roll around and giggle and play. But listen, I want to tell you something. If you ever have the char carpet changed in your home, I, I, don't, don't be there for that experience. <laughs> it is not a pleasant one to know what you've been living in. <laughs> right? Because I remember those guys came in and began to cut it up and roll it up and as they rolled it up, listen, both of our, both of our kids came home to that house. Right? And so there, there was lots of spit up on that carpet. There was lots of other things on that carpet right, that had been scrubbed until our elbows had right, tennis elbow in them. Right? We had dogs in that house. We had kids in that house. Right? There was all kinds of dirt that had seeped all the way down. And when they pulled that carpet up, even though on the top, right, you couldn't really see any of the remnants of the things that had been on top. Underneath, there were still circles and stains that you could see that had seeped so far down into the backing of that carpet, there was no way they were going to be removed. And I was just like, I think I'm a little nauseous right now. Because there are some things that seep so deep within. You may not even realize that they are there. Philip Roth is a novelist and he wrote a book called The Human Stain. The Human Stain. And he used, he, uh, to, to my knowledge, he wasn't a believer. But in that book, he talked about the human stain as a metaphor for evil and wickedness that's within all of us. And listen to how he describes it. He says, the human stain, it's in everyone. It's indwelling, it's inherent, it's defining the stain that is there before its mark. In other words, there's something down here before you ever see it out here in your life. He goes on to say, as we live in this world, we leave a stained trail as there is no other way to be here. There is no other way to live here than to leave this stained trail behind us in our wake. And I wonder if there are some of you in the room this morning who are struggling with that stained trail in your own life of relationships that have been fractured, that have come to an end, maybe on account of your sin and selfishness or the sin and selfishness of others. I wonder if there's some of us who are struggling with that stained trail in our lives of addictions that we've fallen prey to over and over and over and over again. And sometimes just when we think we've gotten free from one addiction, another one seeps in to replace it. Maybe there's some of us who are struggling with the uh, stained trail of life, not not in our relationships or our addictions, but perhaps in maybe the family that we've come out of and the things that have been ingrained within us. The ways we feel like we've been impressed by, those that we've been raised by. We think that we can never be free from these things. And so what we end up trying to do is instead of having it cleansed, what we try to do is we try to cover it. Listen, we probably all had that experience, right? Whenever we have a stain on the carpet, we're like, hey, listen, we can't afford to replace it right now. Just get a rug and put it over it. Nobody will know that it's there. And so we end up trying to cover it. And listen, Paul tried to cover the stain trail of his life, the human stain in his life, with all of his religious performance and all of his pedigree. He kept looking back to all these things that he had done and the line that he had come out of. And I wonder if there's some of you in the room this morning who have been trying to cover the stain in your life through all your religious performance through church attendance, through serving, through, like I'm a good person, right? Whatever you've defined a good person as being, that I'm that in my eyes. I'm living up to that standard. But listen, I want you to know something that when the Bible speaks of, what Paul speaks of here is resurrection power is not merely a covering for that stain, but a cleansing of it. It's a cleansing of it. That you can actually be free from it because Christ has been raised from the grave. And the dirty things in your life can be cleaned. The dead things of your life can, come to, can, can, can be raised. Listen, let me, let me uh, think of three things this morning. Three, three dirty or dead areas of your life that maybe Jesus wants to press on this morning and either cleanse or raise. Because the great aim of your life is to be like Him. The first one is this. The first one is this. Moving from being a self-absorbed, selfish individual to a life of love, vulnerability, compassion, and generosity. How's that going to take place? Listen, I don't think any of us would quibble with the fact that we all come out of the womb rather self-absorbed. Right? Look at your children whenever they were born. right? are so needy. I mean, come on. <laughs> right? All they think of is themselves. I've got to eat. Somebody needs to change me. They need to take a nap, right? I hope you see I'm being a little facetious and sarcastic. But we come out of the womb self-absorbed, only concerned about our own needs. How are you ever going to move from being self-absorbed to a life of generosity, compassion, and love? To a life of beauty? How does that ever take place? Does it take place because you try to manufacture that yourself? Does it take place because you try to cover up over that stain of self-absorption by pretending to be really interested in others when you're not really interested in others? So you try to cover it up? Or is it something that can really touch your heart so deeply that it gives you a heart wound and begins to heal you of your self-absorption, begins to free you of your self-absorption, begins to free you of your self-centeredness? So now your life is lived with with this attention and affection moving away from yourself and towards others how's that going to be healed in your life, church? Your own self-absorption, how's that going to be healed? Is it going to be healed through your effort and through your ability and through your work or through what Christ has done for you and His power in your life because you're aiming to be like Him and to be with Him? Second of all, not only your self-absorption, but your shame. Some of you may have walked in these doors this morning carrying an inordinate amount of shame in your life. Shame over what you've done. Shame over the sins that you've committed. Shame shame over the things that you thought in your mind. I I would before I would never do that. And maybe right now you're being eaten alive by shame. How is that ever gonna be covered and cleansed in your life? Listen, some of you may say, Well, I'm not trying to do it, the religious performance. I don't think that's really the way to go, but maybe some of us are trying to cover our shame through fashion. I feel good about myself and better about myself because I look in the mirror and I look put together. Or I feel better about myself whenever I look in the mirror and I look at all my accomplishments in my vocation. Right? All the attaboys I've gotten. So I've sacrificed my family on the altar of my work because I'm trying to build an identity for myself where I feel good about myself when I look in the mirror because I've achieved a lot. I've gotten a lot of awards and promotions. Because there's something gnawing on the inside that, listen, your vocation and your fashion, it will never cover it. But the power of Jesus' resurrection would cleanse it. It would touch that spot and make it clean. How are you going to deal with the shame in your life? And maybe thirdly, for some of you, how are you going to deal with a sepsis of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in your life? Some of you are like, well, I, I haven't done something to somebody else but it has been done to me, and there is a deep-seated anger, there's a deep-seated resentment, there's a deep-seated bitterness and anger that I've never been free of, no matter how hard i fought. Let me ask you, how are you going to f- be free of that thing? Listen, are you going to be free of that thing by focusing all your attention on the thing that you want to be free of? That's how many of us go about it, right? I want to be forgiving, so I've got to focus all my attention on being forgiving and, 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 and on the thing that I need to forgive somebody else of. But listen, I want you to tell what Paul would say to you is this. He would say, you cannot focus all your attention on the thing that you're trying to be free from, but you've got to focus all your attention upon the one who can free you from it. And make the great aim of your life to be with him and to be like him. That's the only way you're going to be free. That's the only way that those dead areas of your life would flourish again. That's the only way those dirty areas of life would be cleansed. It's not going to come through your effort, Paul says. He says, because what i found is a righteousness that's not of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ. I wonder how many of us are here this morning and we would say, I believe all those propositions. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he was raised from the grave. And right, you would ace the true false exam. But it's never become personal. You've never become personal. You do not feel cleansed. You're still just trying to cover. And God may be you may maybe see God as He is all these things to me, but He's never you never related to Him as all those things in your life. I wonder if that's you today. I don't want you to know there is life that Jesus offers that is not merely existing. But it really is thriving, flourishing, and living. You can be cleansed. And you can be free. All because the tomb is empty, church. It's empty. That power is available and accessible. Would you come to Him this morning and let Him cleanse you and let Him free you? Let's pray. This morning as we pray together. The band's going to come and they're going to lead us in uh, a a couple of songs as we close. We're going to take the Lord's table together. But before we do that, I I wonder if God is perhaps pressing. There are times in my own life where I feel the thumb of God on my heart. And I wonder this morning if you feel the thumb of God on your heart. If perhaps God is prompting you and moving you. Maybe there are things, in, maybe, maybe, maybe he's brought to your attention things in your life that you just felt like you would never be cleansed of. That you would never get rid of that shame. You would never get rid of that guilt that you've been carrying around. And I want you to know Jesus stands ready and waiting to receive that. To cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness of all of your sin, of all the things you've been trying to cover and conceal and keep from everyone who are, is around you. But He has the power to do it. I wonder if that's you this morning. I want you to know when this service draws to a close, there'll be, I'll, I'll be at the exit to this room and I would love to connect with you and pray with you and talk with you. Because there's nothing that I want more for you this morning than to walk out of this room knowing Jesus as a healer. Jesus as the one who can cleanse. Jesus as the one whose righteousness can sufficiently cover all of your sin. And I wonder if there are those in the room this morning who have been wrestling with freedom from addiction, been wrestling with freedom from addiction to things and addictions to people maybe addictions to pornography maybe addictions to substances and you say I just never thought I could be free and I want you to know Jesus stands ready to release the shackles and the bonds if you would become to him and make the center of your life the aspiration aim agenda and ambition to know him and the power of his resurrection. If that's you this morning, I would love to connect with you as well. I want to ask, as our service wraps up as well, a couple of our elders to be present out there too, just to connect with people. They want to come and pray. They want to come and talk. I know you got lunch to get to with family, but that can wait for a few minutes. If you just want to know that you're not alone in that struggle, let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. That he is indeed risen and that power is available. Power, life-altering, life-shaping power is available. To change us and to cleanse us. Father, I know in my life there are things that I thought that I would never, ever be free from. And yet, the power of Your resurrection has slowly begun to loose the grips and release the shackles that I might walk in freedom. There are things in my life that I thought would never be cleansed. Yet the power of Your resurrection has been to touch some of those spots and change this leper's heart and melted it as the great hymn says. And I pray that that might be the experience of every person in this room this morning. That the resurrection will become personal for us and we make it the great aim of our life to know you and to be like you. And we would see that power at work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.